The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, and 24-7 support. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code GUARDIAN to get 10% off. The Guardian Books Podcast with Claire Armistead. As the season of literary log-rolling draws to its close, we take a satirical look at eight of the big books of the year with The Guardian's John Crace and try to digest what they reveal about the state we're in at the end of 2013. Today's digested read is The Letters of T.S. Eliot, Volume 4, 1928-1929. It's co-edited by Eliot's widow Valerie, who died a few months before the volume was published. Dear Mrs. Wolf, thank you for sending me your new short story. I read it with great interest, but feel it is perhaps too frivolous for inclusion in the monthly criterion. Have you thought about sending it to Grazia? Yours, etc. Dear Messrs. Methuen, I note with alarm that the paper for the new setting of the Sacred Wood is below the standard I expect. Please correct soonest. Yours, etc. Dear Master, I trust that nothing will interfere with my stay at New College on the 9th Proxima, and that I will be accorded the same suite of rooms as previously. Does five guineas sound reasonable for my expenses? Yours, etc. My dearest Otteline, I'm so glad that Valerie managed to find room for a few of my maddest letters. La, la, la. Otherwise no one would have any idea of how much of a St. Tom was to put up with me for so long behalf of having me committed to an asylum. Such a wonderful Christian man. Anyone else might have been tempted to have an affair by my madness. The cat stood on the mat. Much love, Vivian. My darling Emily. Regrettably, all the correspondence between T.S. Eliot and Emily Hale has been embargoed until 2020, so readers will just have to take the chaste nature of their relationship on trust. Eds. P.S. I've always hated that bitch. Valerie. Dear Cummings, thank you for sending me your new ditty. Unfortunately, it is not quite suitable for the monthly criterion. Have you thought about taking remedial lessons in grammar and punctuation? Yours, etc. Dear Leonard, it was a rare honour to meet someone such as yourself with more money than sense. As you know, the monthly criterion is struggling financially and with your help, we could re-establish the magazine on a quarterly footing. Thank you also for your offer to publish an edition of my poems in Latin. Once I have fulfilled my contractual obligations to Faber, of which I am now a director, I shall be happy to accept. In the meantime, I submit my invoice for 300 guineas. Yours, etc. Dear Faber, I note that 12 paper clips are missing from the office inventory and that my papers had not been placed perpendicular to the inkwell on my desk. This state of affairs cannot be allowed to continue. Yours, etc. Dear Aldington, thank you for sending me your latest verses, if they can be called that. 
I confess that I have found them disappointing in the extreme. An opinion that I must make clear has nothing to do with your outspoken assertions that Vivian is not really that mad. Have you tried the people's friend? Dear Prince de Rohan, Thank you for your appreciation of the German translation of my essay on Machiavelli. So often one feels one is putting pearls before swine. Vivian is doing as well as can be expected, and I get enormous comfort from my faith. Yours, etc. Dear Auden, I'm sorry I kept you waiting in the Faber antechamber for several hours. I had a very important meeting with my secretary. Do call the office to arrange another appointment sometime next year. Dear Faber, the paper clips are still missing. Dear Spender, thank you for your invitation to speak at the Oxford Poetry Society. Regrettably, I must decline as I am exhausted. Having read a few lines of your latest work, dare I suggest that poetry is not your forte? I submit my invoice for 15 guineas for the expenses that would have accrued had I accepted. Yours, etc. The Digested Read Digested. A publisher's thank you for being kept afloat by cats. There when the pharaohs commissioned the sphinx. T.S. Eliot's Letters as Digested by John Crace, who joins me now, along with Guardian Poetry Editor Nick Rowe. John, are the letters really as banal as you make them sound? What's, what's with all the paper clips? Well, there is a lot of tedious office admin amongst the letters, and I kind of think there's one year's worth of letters, 1928 to 29, and we know that Eliot died in 1965, so... At this rate, we've got another 35 years and another 35 books of his letters to come out. You kind of rather feel that there are some gems in there, but that have probably been better condensed into just a couple of books rather than into 40. Nick, tell us about the importance of T.S. Eliot today. When I was at Oxford, we studied him. He was sort of one of the canonical authors. Is he still so important? Yeah, Eliot is as important today as he was the day that he died, as the day that he published The Wasteland, as the day that he started out. Eliot remains the pinnacle. He's kind of unbreakable, despite John's best efforts in going through the letters. You can't lay a glove on him. It's very difficult. He's still taught in universities. So The Wasteland is still one of the pinnacles of 20th century literature. Anyone who becomes serious about poetry wouldn't want to miss out on T.S. Eliot. He has a reputation for being difficult, and that's true. You can make it as difficult as you like, but equally he can be incredibly accessible. A few years ago, um, I went to one of the late Josephine Hart's poetry readings, and somehow she got Seamus Heaney to take part in a reading of Eliot. I mean, partly this is the Seamus genius factor, in that he was a wonderful reader and a wonderful interpreter, but this was instantly arresting and accessible stuff for a general audience. Eliot's with us, he will stay with us. John, would you decode some of these names? As we say, this is quite a long time ago that these letters were written. We know about Mrs Wolfe, that's Virginia Wolfe. We probably know about Otteline, who's Otteline Morell, the great hostess 
and patron. But who are Messrs Methuen, for example? They're his publishers, basically. One of the things that comes across in his letters, I mean, I don't dispute with Nick that he's a really important writer, but I think we could exclude his letters from his importance because he is obsessed with detail. One of the other things that he's obsessed with is being paid. He is absolutely fastidious that, you know, he should have the best bed in the best place in uh, Oxford. He's going to get 50 quid for this and 50 quid for that. And that he's very worried about the office stationery as well. He was it's, a publisher as well as a writer. Of course he cares about this stuff. It's going to go with the territory. I mean, it's quite endearing in a way, but it becomes quite repetitious after a while. My take on this was that they were bulking up the book with loads of letters that could have been left out. It does raise the question of who letter collections are for, and there have been a lot of these this year. We've had Isherwood and Don Bacardi, we've had Salinger, loads and loads of letters. Are they for universities? Are they for general readers? What is the value of them? I think the value is going to be in the individual books. It's difficult to say what the value of any, you know, in, in general, what's going to be. Of, of a more interesting point is we're now going to be getting to the end of letters, aren't we? That we should be sort of grateful that someone is doing this work, that it is being collated, that um, however dull it'll be, there's going to be plenty of time for someone to boil this down into something interesting. But soon enough, everything is going to be on deleted emails and we're going to be desperate to get information like this. I think the issue with letters, they are just fantastic because they get a period of his late life when he knows he's on the wane and he's very bitchy and very indiscreet and they open the man up in a way that is I mean I found him fascinating and endearing from his letters I learned so much from that and I suspect it was because they were judiciously edited where these you kind of feel there's been a kind of keeping of the flame here, that anything that he wrote, even if it was a sort of birthday card, is sacred. There are a couple of his relationships come through in this. You rather mischievously sneak a letter from Vivian into your digestive Well, reading. no, I, I haven't... That's what's quite interesting in the book. They have put two or three letters from Vivian Who in. was Vivian? Vivian was his first wife, who is the hidden person throughout this because their relationship was very very difficult we also suspect that he was having an affair with emily hale at the time we also know that the letters have been edited jointly edited by valerie who is his widow who married him much later and was his secretary and has been absolutely ruthless in censoring out bits of Eliot legacy that are perhaps uncomfortable. So particularly you mentioned this relationship with Emily Hale, which, which is embargoed till 2020. Is that true or is that your invention? No, no, that is absolutely true. And they will be released then. And I think it's going to be quite interesting to see what emerges from that. Because then we'll suddenly be in a position where we can go back and look at the letters from the 1920s and realise that the official edited version produced by Valerie is perhaps incomplete and inaccurate. Do you think, Nick, that there is a sense that Emily Hale is a bit of a time bomb waiting to go off in the, in the legacy of Eliot? I mean, she was supposed to be the female presence in Burnt Norton in the Four Quartets. She's this sort of relationship we don't know very much about. What I gather, there's going to be a lot more of this stuff that will happen. There will be a loosening up of the process now that Valerie has, has, has gone and the, the hope 
is that there will be increased access to a wider range of information and biographers will be able to get work um, quite famously. She wouldn't let Peter Ackroyd use the material when he was writing a biography some years ago. So I think there might be Emily and a whole lot of other things will come out, which will be time bombs or not time bombs, which will add to our knowledge of T.S. Eliot. Now, John, you customarily end with a digested digested. It's a publisher's thank you for being kept afloat by cats. Well, Faber is Eliot's publisher. And, I mean, famously, Faber were struggling as an independent publisher and were going to go under. Then Andrew Lloyd Webber did the musical of Cats and T.S. Eliot's old possum book suddenly became an international bestseller and has been a complete money spinner, not quite in the way that J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter was for Bloomsbury. But, you know, of that order, it was it sort of single handedly allowed them to continue, grow and whatever. The, The Faber gratitude is you know, being extended in a slight form of indulgence by publishing something that they probably ordinarily wouldn't have published. To speak up for Valerie a little bit, I mean, I said before that she was a bit careful about, um, a bit careful to, to say the least of it, of um, allowing permissions. I mean, the fact that Cats did happen was a slice of brilliance, really. I mean, it was a, it was the time to allow access to the work, to for permissions to be granted, hugely lucrative. And after she died, there was some sort of slightly sniffy pieces about her being the secretary that's how she was sort of cast which can sound very, very dismissive but there's a sort of serious point behind that it was miss fletcher and mr elliot from 1949 until 1957 when they married and then then he became tom and, and, and all the rest of it but then after he died they only married a short period of time for seven, seven or eight years after she died she sort of went back to being the, the secretary in the best sense of the world of protecting him and protecting his work and looking after it and in that she's done a, a, a pr- pretty good job of which cats is a part of it she's also said up a charity hasn't she which gives gives grants over quite a wide range because he was a man of the theatre as well as a poet wasn't he yeah so that's right yeah yeah so the, 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 well the money's gone all sorts of places I mean she personally funded the T.S. Eliot Prize which is you know, arguably the premier um, poetry prize in, in this country and then some of the cat's money went to her building up an art collection which was recently put up at auction and raised seven million pounds which again this money will go back into this trust which is largely for um, young poets and artists and uh, generally good things which we can all say well done Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, drag and drop tools, and 24-7 support. Squarespace also offers seamless e-commerce solutions for you or your small business. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look brilliant on any device. Start your free trial today, no credit card required. As a Guardian podcast listener, you'll get 10% off your new account by using the offer code GUARDIAN. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.